Thank you, Hannah. <clears throat> Father, we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice through Jesus Christ our Lord. Send us out in the power of your Spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. Amen. Uh, some of you may already be familiar with uh, that prayer. It's um, a prayer that we conclude most um, of our Holy Communion um, services with, that prayer at our 8.30 service when we do our, our prayer book service. It's a very, very, very familiar prayer to a lot of people. Uh, we've already sung also this morning about being a living sacrifice. Um, the idea of us as Christians being living sacrifices it springs directly from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12, uh, wherein he begins with these words. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, this good, pleasing, and perfect will. So um, that's the idea of being a living sacrifice. But of course, the idea of being a living sacrifice is a beautiful oxymoron. Sacrificial animals were killed. Essentially, that's the essence of sacrifice. It is the killing of the animal that makes it a sacrifice. Dead animals are immobile. Um, living ones can escape. For us to live sacrificially, then, means to live as though dead or to live as though dying in some very real sense. The problem with being a living sacrifice, and many have noted this, the, the problem with being a living sacrifice is that it's very easy to crawl off the altar. An altar, of course, being a pile of rocks on which you kill an animal. Uh, well, this morning we conclude a short series of sermons on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapters 1 to 4. We'll come back again to this book uh, next year, the Lord willing. And as we've seen over the last four weeks, there is a significant problem that Paul is addressing in the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth was split and divided into various factions. I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos. I'm with Cephas. I'm with Christ. Um, for Paul, this is in some ways not a, not a simple problem to solve because it's, it's not actually a problem. It's, it's a symptom of a problem. It's a symptom of a disease, so to speak. For we, we saw three weeks ago how, from the letter itself, how this divisiveness, this factionalism, was the result really of them not understanding the cross. Yes, sure, they'd, they'd heard about Jesus and they'd come to faith in Jesus as, as Lord and Savior, but they're still living by the old rules, still obsessed with position and status and one-upmanship and control. And 
they were probably interpreting, actually they're probably interpreting discipleship through the lens of the patron-client relationship, a type of relationship that was somewhat foundational uh, to life in the Roman Empire. Jesus was their patron. They were his clients. They would serve him faithfully, advancing his cause whenever they could. And in, in response, he'd come through with the goods, open doors, financial success, introductions, and good matches. To, to, to put that another way, these living sacrifices had developed a theologically sophisticated way of removing themselves from the altar. So, Paul has spilt a lot of ink in chapters 1 and 2, talking about what it means that we serve a crucified emperor, and that Jesus, as king, inaugurates a rule, a kingdom, in which all of this is turned completely upside down. The principle of inversion. God will humble the proud, but exalt the humble. God will cause the lofty to fall, but lift up the lowly. And part of the problem, therefore, as we see in chapters um, 2, 3, and 4, part of the problem was a misunderstanding of Christian leadership, such that the, the laity of the, of the Corinthian church, as we might say, the laity tended to idolize their various human leaders and thereafter divide into camps of followers or factions in competition and in conflict with one another. That's answered in chapter 3, wherein Paul points out, firstly, how childish such behavior is and how such behavior misunderstands completely the nature of Christian leadership. Um, which is, I mean, think about the analogies he uses to describe Christian leadership. He talks about one guy sowing and another guy watering and some other bloke building, a, laying and another guy... A, but laying a foundation, another guy building on it. I mean, what appalling analogies. They're disgusting. I mean, sowing, watering, digging, pouring foundations, brick-making and brick-laying. Precisely the type of employment no self-respecting Roman citizen would ever aspire to. That type of work was for slaves. This Christian leadership is, is, is about as prestigious as slavery. And, and, and slaves, they came from somewhere else. Slaves, they came from those other lands that had lost, that had been defeated in war. Some other nationality, not, not as strong, not as vigorous, not as disciplined, not as hardworking, not as well-educated, not as intelligent as us citizens of the Roman Empire. Somewhere like Gaul. Or Judea. The other, the other side of that same coin, of course, was that they're, they're clearly their leaders in the Church of Corinth, they, they wanted, needed, encouraged being idolized. And as we saw last week, Paul fires a few salvos across the bow of such leadership, gets them to think about what it is that they're doing when they splinter and divide God's church, which is destroying God's church, and God will destroy those who destroy his church. And, of course, the phrase, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, also means I'm against Paul. And Paul knows that there are people in Corinth criticizing him 
undermining him, criticizing both his manner and his message. And on face value, we can understand that both Paul's presentation and his message would be somewhat repulsive to a Greek audience. Paul uh, was, I understand, traditionally, we understand from tradition that Paul was a small, bald, middle-aged man with bad eyesight. Um, He was the kind of guy that it was easy to ignore. Um, He did not preach or make speeches in the way that the fashionable and expensive oraticians and philosophers did, with fine and persuasive arguments using sophisticated rhetorical techniques so that you all went, wow, Paul could be difficult to follow. People fell asleep during his sermons. At least one guy did. He could go on all night. He spoke quietly and gently and as plainly as he could. Nevertheless, not everyone understood him all the time. And indeed, he spoke in his own confession, trembling, weak with fear. And his message of Jesus the Christ and Christ crucified, whilst winning converts by the power of the Holy Spirit, it was a hard message. Christ crucified, a scandal to the Jewish mind and offensive to Greeks. And in that light, let's read on. If you'd like to follow along, we're on page 90, sorry, 925, 925 of the Pew Bible. Let's read verses 1 to 5 of the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul writes, This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and of and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, um, words about judging and not judging in the Bible can often be a little bit difficult to understand. And that's often because uh, when in the Bible we hear, don't judge, there's often lots of words about do judging uh, in very close proximity. Uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, do not judge um, and you will not be judged. And very shortly afterwards he says, judge. <laughs> no, no good tree can bear bad fruit and no bad tree can bear good fruit. And Paul in this letter, he does the same thing. He says, judge nothing before the appointed time. And then for the rest of the letter he says, judge for yourselves. Judge this, judge that. Um, It uh, it can be very difficult to understand sometimes what we're being told when we're being told not to judge. And the immediate context is essential, and so is an understanding of the author's intent. Trying to work out what we're being encouraged to do and censored from doing. I mean, because, of course, we, we have to judge all kinds of things constantly. Would you like tea or coffee? 
Oh, nothing. I, I, I can't. Uh, I don't know. I'm waiting for Jesus to return. Uh, then I'll know. Uh, I mean, we constantly have to judge all kinds of the things. We have to make decisions about what's right and wrong, good and bad. And, of course, Paul doesn't mean what he said. He means what he means. Uh, he, he himself in this letter, he commands the Corinthians to judge for themselves on what's right and what's wrong on all kinds of issues. Here, Paul, I think, is using hyperbole. Um, he's overstating his case. He's using exaggeration. Now, as I've said a hundred trillion billion times, exaggeration tends to undermine seriousness in our culture. You don't make a serious point using exaggeration. Um, but in in our culture, and we're hyperliteral, we, we, we assume that people mean exactly what they've said. Hyperbole is a way of making an extremely important point, but exaggerating, so that it can't, it, it can't be taken literally. Um, and this hyperbole, well-developed, well-developed form of speech in the Middle East, um, we're unfamiliar with it, but it's, the New Testament is full of it. Um, he's saying something extremely important, but he's exaggerating. And I think what he's saying is something a little bit like this. He's saying, stop judging me. Stop acting like you're the judge of me and the judge of your leaders. Jesus is the judge. And to this he adds, live in fear of Jesus' end-time judgment. Because we know that's just around the corner and we know how Jesus is going to judge and we know what's important to him. As Christians, we live in the light of that judgment and not in the light of or in the fear of each other's judgment and what other people think. So live in the fear of that judgment. And insofar as that might be right, there are several things that come out for us. Firstly, it is fundamentally inappropriate for us to be judgmental about our Christian leaders. Just as it was back then, fundamentally inappropriate for a person to judge somebody else's servant. Just as it is today, fundamentally inappropriate for children to judge their parents. So then, the next time your uh, child or your adult child uh, says to you, You're ruining my life! You can answer, You're not qualified to judge. If and when I start ruining your life, I'll let you know. And Paul is saying, I am your servant, but that does not make you my master. And the same goes for us too, with respect to whomever the Lord has placed above us. Um, I, I'm, I'm aware, as sadly, uh, that um, whenever us Anglican ministers get together, we often speak very critically of those that the Lord has placed above us. We often judge them mercilessly. That's wrong. We shouldn't do that. It's inappropriate. It's wrong. Um, and the second thing that comes out of this is that, is that it's inappropriate because Paul knows the criterion by which he'll be judged. He knows the criterion by which he'll be judged by Jesus, and that is faithfulness. Not success, not initiative, not influence or significance, not growth, not even by hard work, nor by any KPI that any bystander may or may not be able to observe for themselves. And that is true also, that's likewise true for us as well. In whatever way we each exercise leadership in the different domains to which 
God has called us to exercise leadership, we'll be judged on faithfulness, not success, which is so uncertain. And um, it means that it's very difficult to judge each other. Um, uh, I will be judged on faithfulness, on faithfulness to what Jesus has revealed to me that I ought to be doing. And that's actually very difficult for you guys to tell. I mean, you've got some, you know, broad measures. Um, but I, I, could, you could be, I could be sailing for Tarshish, and you guys could be right behind me, and only I and the Lord knows that actually it's Nineveh I should be going to. Um, ultimately, we can't judge each other as to what faithfulness looks like. Um, not in depth, not in detail. Um, Secondly, it is fundamentally, this is the second really important thing that comes out of this. Secondly, it is fundamentally inappropriate to be judgmental about ourselves. A Christian is someone who has stopped judging him or herself because they have repented of being the king of their own lives. Now, in our age, it is, um, we've, we've psychologized forgiveness and out of that endeavor, it's somehow meaningful to talk about forgiving yourself. And sometimes people find it hard to forgive themselves. And we might even ask, have you forgiven yourself? Paul's answer is very clear. It's not my place to judge. I have a judge, and his name is Jesus. I have repented of being my own judge. Therefore, if uh, you are struggling to forgive yourself, um, so to speak, for some sin, weakness, or historic atrocity that you've committed, then the reason for that is that you're probably still holding on to the right to be your own judge, a right which actually you forsook at your conversion. The question isn't, have we forgiven ourselves? But rather, have we received the forgiveness we know that is ours by the blood of the Lamb? Um, and and uh, nevertheless, um, when we talk about forgiving ourselves, that seems to somehow have some currency in our culture because we measure forgiveness by feelings. Uh, and now, in, in the Bible, forgiveness is a decision you make, and it's a legal decision, an economic decision. Forgiveness is, uh, is uh, laying down our legal right to repayment in kind. And you can make that decision instantly. Um, it's, it's, in, it's an economic transaction, so to speak. Forgive us our trespasses. Uh, forgive us our debts. Um, so biblically thinking, you can no more forgive yourself than you can owe yourself $5. You cannot owe yourself money. It's impossible. Um, but, we, but we, we, we take the measure of forgiveness. I, I will never forgive them. What they often mean is, I can't imagine not being angry or hurt um, about that. And yeah, actually, God was angry for 40 years with his people, but he forgave them instantly as soon as Moses asked. Numbers 14. Um, so then if we're struggling with guilt, shame, disappointment in ourselves. That's, that's just pastoral pay dirt. That's, that's stuff to go to the Lord with and ask him to touch and to heal and to speak to. But Paul says, my conscience is clear. 
but that doesn't make me innocent. Um, he knows the Lord sees straight through him, where his, wherein his own ability to see through himself is very limited. But he keeps short accounts with God. When he does something that he knows is wrong, he asks for forgiveness, he believes God, and he receives it. And his conscience is clear. He knows that he's accepted as a child of God, utter, utter, utter acceptance on the basis of the cross of Christ. And in the same way, there's absolutely no reason why we also can't have a completely clear conscience today by way of that same truth. Um, let's read on, uh, verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you'll not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. You've begun to reign. And that without us. Oh, how I wish you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been a made spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to humans. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Um, well, one of, one of the phenomena that, that Paul is alluding to in that passage is that actually churches are kind of places where people kind of do get healthy, wealthy, and wise. Human beings, if done with gross sin and set free from besetting addictions, human beings tend to flourish. As we get to know each other and live in close-knit communities, we tend to move from sinking to surviving and from surviving to thriving. It should, that shouldn't surprise us because God knows what he's talking about when it comes to how to do human life. And actually, you know, the statistics speak for themselves. Churchgoers do actually achieve higher educational standards, have more stable marriages, uh, have more stable families, have more fulfilling sex lives, live significantly longer lives, and achieve a higher standard of living, on average, than non-churchgoers. Um, this uh, makes churches, uh, interestingly, this makes churches quite attractive in aspirational societies. And Corinth was an aspirational town. Everybody wanted to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and actually most people were dirt poor. But there is a great danger in this. Uh, left to our own devices, 
we will fool ourselves into thinking that actually church is the place to receive spiritual principles for success. Um, and together, we'll all affirm whatever it is that we feel is life-giving. And we'll use phrases like, name it and claim it. And we'll, we'll talk about dream building and going international and how God's got a wonderful plan for your life. And not mention that actually that plan is the cross. And the gospel that we'll all start preaching is actually the gospel of triumphalism. I have a friend in high places, so watch out. And I'm going to triumph in Jesus' name over everything that stands in the way of me attaining the lifestyle I want to attain. It's enormously popular. It's incredibly popular in Africa. It's astonishingly popular in Perth. And it is a theologically sophisticated way by which living sacrifices can climb off the altar whilst pretending that they're still there. Paul uses a mixture of exaggeration, hyperbole, possibly sarcasm, certainly irony, to make this point. And this is, this is the point in two sentences. The way the Corinthians perceive themselves, that is, rich, wise, successful, and in charge of their lives, is what they think Paul should be too, which is why they're criticizing him. But the way Paul actually is, which is homeless and poor and a slave to all, is actually the way they ought to be. And Paul's words would have been deeply, deeply shocking to Greco-Roman ears. The, those people at the end of the procession, those condemned to die in the arena, perhaps as fodder for gladiators or for wild animals, for the entertainment of the masses, they were those, they were those poor savages, inferior people from inferior nations, captured in battle. We work with our own hands. That would, that's something pretty disgusting about Paul that the Corinthians already knew. He was a tradie. He was a leather worker, a tent maker. The, the Greco-Roman ideal was something that the, the English call a gentleman. In other words, somebody of no profession, a man of leisure, in other words. If, if you had to be perhaps somebody who worked with ideas, what we might call a professional, but, but, but not somebody who works with their hands. Scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. Actually, Paul is using religious language here. Um, sometimes in various Greco-Roman cults, a criminal or a slave would be killed or thrown off a cliff or something like that so as to appease the gods, uh, so as to do a little house cleaning, so as to rid the earth of something that was offensive to the gods. What, what the Corinthians are missing, and the Church of Perth, she misses it too regularly and routinely, is that overwhelmingly to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to follow a recipe for downward social mobility, ultimately to the immobility of sacrifice. 
it costs to follow Jesus. David understood that. Michal didn't. Oh, and by the way, uh, Ben, there's no such word as de-aspirational. I mean, isn't that shocking? I looked it up. I went to the source of all wisdom and knowledge, the internet, and I couldn't find the word de-aspirational. There is, as far as human beings are, are concerned, there's no point in thinking about whatever is the opposite of aspirational. So I had to make the word up. Um, Paul writes, verse 14, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Um, Interestingly, Paul is actually not writing to shame them about being healthy, wealthy, and wise. He's he's not writing to shame them about whatever measure of material affluence or comfort they have. Um, There's no shame in being blessed. Just ask David. But David knew in all of this shower of blessing that the way to respond was, 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 was to bless back, was to sacrifice. Um, that's, what makes sacrifice, that's what makes sacrifice good in the Bible. It's willing, it's caring, and it's loving. If it's not those things, it's actually repulsive. Um, especially if you think by, by that you can manipulate God. But when sacrifice is loving, caring, and willing, um, it, it's a beautiful thing. And that's the way to respond. And David knows that he's just going to sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice and more and more and more and more and more because he's been blessed so much. And what he's prepared to sacrifice, actually, ultimately, is he's prepared to sacrifice his own dignity and standing. To sacrifice that in worship and in the service of others. Paul and David understood that the principle of inversion transforms both the priorities and also the experience of leadership. But some of them had become arrogant. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you, verse 19, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Well, um, Paul's message uh, is um, we can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way. But either way, we can see that Paul is absolutely deadly serious about them changing their thinking and them changing their behavior. Paul describes uh, the leaders uh, who haven't understood the principle of inversion, haven't haven't understood that uh, the priorities and experience of leadership are going to change if we understand the cross. He has described them as arrogant people, or puffed up, or conceited, or proud, as it may also be translated. Um, Arrogance or conceit, um, it's a fascinating thing. 
I find it fascinating because it is so very difficult to spot in yourself and so startlingly obvious to everybody else. Um, but the way that sin works in conceit is, is something a little bit like this. Conceit works so that I become more and more important in my own understanding and estimation, and other people become less and less important. Um, it's okay if they suffer. It's okay if they die. And those other people might be one or two individuals or groups or actually just about everybody. Um, that's the way conceit works. Um, I tell you that so that perhaps you might be able to spot it in yourself uh, as occasionally I spot it in myself. Um, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power. Again, not a phrase of Paul's that makes a great deal of sense if it's taken literally. For indeed, uh, most kingdom work most emphatically is a matter of talk. Um, but the phrase is clear enough nevertheless. Paul knows that his ministry as apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher is vindicated by God by way of signs and wonders wrought by the Holy Spirit. Um, and he knows that as an aspect of those ministries, he's called to correct and rebuke those who go astray and those who lead others astray. Um, perhaps we might, I'm not sure what Paul had in mind by rod of discipline and all kinds of people guess. Perhaps we might uh, um, imagine, you know, like um, um, uh, the emperor versus Luke Skywalker with, you know, um, um, electricity coming out of their fingertips or, or, or um, Gandalf the Grey versus the guy in white. What was his name? Salaman? Saruman, you know, with you know, great. I, I've got no idea what this confront, confrontation is going to look like. Perhaps it might look like Paul when he cursed Elamias, the sorcerer on the island of Cyprus, and cursed him with blindness, and he went blind because Elamias, in his blindness, was obscuring gospel ministry. I don't know what this confrontation may have looked like, but I think probably Paul's rod of discipline actually would have been something gentle, um, being able simply to humiliate his opponents as Jesus did time and time again in the synagogues by simply loving people and healing them and uh, exercising demons out of them um, and conversions and things like that, which just showed that the Holy Spirit was vindicating his message. But either way, um, what's important is that we can see very, very clearly that Paul is not willing for the factionalism of the Corinthian church to go unchecked because... As we have seen for ourselves, it is ultimately a terminal illness. And this testimony of this letter remains for us today because the problems that beset the Corinthian church still plague um, churches today. It is easy for us to climb down off the altar and to find ways of theologically justifying that. But the gospel calls us, calls us to repent of the triumphalism that that involves and to embrace the cost of following Jesus, downward social mobility leading to immobility, the immobility of sacrifice. Father, we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice through Jesus Christ our Lord. Send us out in the power of your Spirit to live and work to your praise and glory.
Amen.